We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Today I'm going to talk about, I won't be able to tell you who the Antichrist he is. I have a picture taken with the Pope giving him the book uh, on, on the Antichrist, and I'm bending low. It's a beautiful picture in color because, you know, the Pope always has his, um, his uh, photographers right there, and they take excellent pictures. You don't even know they're taking pictures, you're talking to the Holy Father. And I'm bending low talking to him, and uh, he's listening. And someone says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm telling him who the Antichrist is, but I'm swearing him to secrecy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I won't be able to tell you who he is, what he does, or what he will do, and how he will do it. We do have uh, scriptural and uh, uh, church teaching on that, the fathers and whatnot. So are we in the times of the Antichrist? I would say that our Lord said... Look for the signs of the times. When you see this happening, things happening in the sky. St. Paul tells us the big spiritual sign, and more of these signs are coming together, is the apostasy from the faith. People leaving Jesus and his church and going towards false messiahs. That's the big sign. Now, why did St. Paul happen to give us that sign? Well... He had written, you know, the early uh, fathers and even apostles, they spoke about the prophecy of the Antichrist. They didn't, uh, they didn't give uh, the early Christians what you call comfortable Catholicism. They really told it the way it was. And they all talked about the Antichrist. You read the fathers, Augustine, um, for example, uh, the great doctor of the church, Anselm, all of them, Thomas, they all talk about it. Well, St. Paul gave us... I talked to his church of the Corinthians. And when he left, as you know, he was always on the move, founding new churches, somebody falsified his doctrine on the Antichrist. So that they got in there and told the people, well, the end of the world's coming any day. There's no use working. And so the people quit working. They were sitting around on corners in the bistros, probably drinking wine or whatever the, uh, uh, they drank in those days. And St. Paul heard about it and he said, he wrote back to them and he said to them, somebody has really falsified what I told you. Here's the way it goes. And he says in his second letter to the, um, to the uh, Corinthians, second, Thessalonians, I'm sorry, second letter to the Thessalonians, he says this, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the general apostasy comes first. And the man of sin, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and is exalted above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God and gives himself out to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what restrains him, that he may be revealed in his proper time. For the mystery of iniquity is already at work, provided only that he who is at present restraining it, he who is at present restraining it, does still restrain until he's gotten out of the way. And then St. Paul tells something about what, what kind of work the Antichrist will do. And when the wicked one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming, this wicked one is going to come according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders He'll have power over the universe, power over tremendous preternatural actions which Satan as a pure spirit will let him perform. With all power and signs of lying wonders, lying wonders and with all wicked deception to those who are perishing, for they have not received the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there St. Paul is trying to correct. He says, the time for the Antichrist in the early church was not right. After all, the faith was strong. The fathers were trying to find out who is this he that's keeping the Antichrist away. And it can only be, at least we think, the strong faith that the early church had in our divine Lord and the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. But when the time comes that Catholics lose the faith, don't live it, live like pagans, post Christian pagans, then they lose the Holy Spirit. Because if you're in mortal sin, you're not getting the blessings of faith from the Holy Spirit. You're an enemy of God. And then you're creating the social womb of moral corruption, out of which womb will come the birth of the Antichrist as a sort of final punishment for man. After God has pleaded with him through the church, the popes, centuries of saints and finally our blessed lady appearing all over the place to warn us and they don't listen then they'll produce the man of sin the son of perdition who will then get control of that corrupt society and as the fathers tell us he will be a military tyrant he'll be a, an economic lord he will know the bible inside out so that he could quote it any way he wants. He'll be a master of many languages. St. Thomas even says he'll be one of the best speakers, probably the only speaker greater than him was Christ himself, who spoke in such a way that the crowds hung on every word. Such was his marvelous power of attracting souls. But the Antichrist will have the same, not quite the same, but a fascinating power. You've seen uh, pictures of Hitler mesmerizing hundreds of thousands of Germans. You've seen pictures of Mussolini mesmerizing hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Italians. If, if a normal man can do that, and also in an evil cause, Nazism and fascism were evil causes, and get so many millions behind them, what will the Antichrist be able to do who will have far greater power than these men have had and will be able to just manipulate the masses in all nations to do whatever he wants? Now, where do we find the word Antichrist in Scripture? It's very interesting. Only one person uses that word, and that is the beloved disciple, St. John. 
He, for example, in his second letter to the early churches and warning them about falling away into heresy, he writes this particular uh, paragraph, which gives us really the word Antichrist. He's writing to all the churches because he was the last of the apostles, lived to be 100 years old, and uh, therefore he could look over what the church was going through. At that time, Nero was persecuting the churches. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were becoming martyrs, and he wanted to encourage the readers of his letter, which, which letters went from church to church as they passed them around so that the Catholics could hear them at Mass, at uh, their even secret meetings. They didn't have open Masses. They had them in houses secretly so that the Roman, Roman uh, soldiers and uh, uh, authorities would not capture them and persecute them. He says, Dear children, it is the last hour. Now, what do we mean by the last hour? Well, since Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, we're in the last times. In other words, the times of all human history can be broken up in the times before the coming calling of Abraham, when Adam and Eve fell. Those were the early times, driven from the garden, and at the same time, the human race is growing and people are falling into idolatry and whatnot, and God is trying to bring them to a knowledge of himself through the Revelation of creation, which really does have God's signs on it. And so people fell into all sorts of idolatry. Finally, he decided, I will found a special race. And he called Abraham. And Abraham is still in those early times, the beginning of God's revelation to educate mankind to the true God and to how they will be saved. Then comes Christ, the fulfillment of that revelation. It's not just the word of an angel or the word of inside in the mind. It's the incarnate word himself. That's the middle times. Christ comes, lives, dies, saves us, founds his church, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, goes to heaven, and then we're in the last times, waiting for his second coming, when he will gather us all into his kingdom, when giving us the time to grow in holiness through sending us the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and giving us the time to grow in the merits that he's earned for us by his passion. Now, we're in the last times, have been in the last times since the ascension of our Lord into heaven. But now St. John says, it is the last hour. So, when the church is being persecuted terribly, he's warning Christians, we're in the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So that now many Antichrists have arisen. Whence we know that it is the last hour. They have gone forth from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would surely have continued with us. But they were to be made manifest that not one of them is of us. Then he gives a definition of the Antichrist. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And he goes on. He is the Antichrist who divides Jesus Christ. And he goes on, and every spirit that severs Jesus, and you know today you have people saying Jesus is a revolutionary, Jesus is a man for others, he's a, he's a social worker, he's a, a savior to bring a utopia on this world. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. That's a divided Jesus. That's a false Jesus. Our Lord said in the end of times, there will be a lot of messiahs. Don't go out to listen to them. They're all over the place. 
We read them in this country. Rashnish, and there's another lady now out in uh, Arizona, and she's got her own group now. There was Jim Jones. Uh, there's uh, uh, There are 5,000 cults in this country and 30 million people attending them. Now, I went to two national counter-cult conventions. I had to give a talk on the Antichrist. I was the only Catholic priest there because of the book, The Antichrist. They liked it and they invited me. But these fundamentalists are more alerted to what's happening. Actually, some of them, if you look into them clearly, are cults themselves. But anyway, others are not. They're really sincerely trying to find Christ. But they know what's happening. And they went through these cults. And the the things they're doing, the uh, special secret ceremonies, the oaths that they take, the attempt to destroy Christianity, to bring in a new God, all of that's there, and I learned an awful lot, and I'm reading a lot on it. Since I've been to both of those uh, national conferences, I had a third one, which I couldn't make it. first one was in Kansas City, and the second one was in Cleveland, I think, but they still hold them each year. I think the bishops ought to go to them and learn what's going on and get serious about what's happening to the leakage of Catholics out of the church into cults, which are all, every cult has a false god. And behind every false god is Satan. Every false religion has Satan behind it because that's what he wants to do, divide and conquer. Lead people into a false religion where they will be adoring a false god. So that is what John is saying. He says here, he is the Antichrist and every spirit that severs Jesus, they're all trying to preach Jesus. They all bring Jesus in, but it isn't the Jesus that we know from Scripture and what the church has as the head of the invisible head of the church. Every spirit that severs Jesus is not of God. It's not of God. Who is it of? Satan, huh? But is of Antichrist, of whom you have heard that he is coming and now is already in the world. For many deceivers have gone forth into the world who do not confess Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, coming in the flesh. This is the, the deceiver. This is the Antichrist. Now, what does John mean by saying many Antichrists have gone out already? Well, just as God, in getting the human race ready, for the coming of the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ, just as God would send out holy men, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph down in Egypt, uh, Moses, Aaron, Jeremiah, Elias, getting the people ready, educating. See, the human race is like a little child. God has to adapt himself to our capacity. So he's just as he sent his good and holy prophets, out to get us ready for the coming of the fullness of revelation in the person, visible person of Jesus Christ incarnated. So the devil apes God's plan to God's plan to save us. His plan is to destroy us. He sends out many antichrists, people who attack religion. Nebuchadnezzar could destroy the temple, take all the things that were in the Holy of Holies and desecrate them and bring the Jews into captivity for 70 years. Uh, all other uh, surrounding tribes of uh, idolaters would attempt to get the Jews and succeeded in getting them to fall into idolatry. Why, Moses barely had them out in the, in the desert when they built the golden calf and began adoring that. And Moses had to slay something like 3,000 of them in one day for, this, 
for the crime of idolatry. So Satan sends his antichrist out through history. We could look through them. Some of them are religious, like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, King Henry VIII, destroying the church. Some of them are political. Some of them are merely uh, military. Genghis Khan, all people that hate the church. Today you have many, many antichrists. They're not the final antichrist. You had one in Hitler who was a devil worshiper. Marx was a devil worshiper. We have that clearly established. These are many antichrists in order to corrupt human race and get it ready for the super. You know, we, we Americans always like to talk about superstars. Well, there will be a super antichrist. That will be the epitome in, human, in a human being as the agent of Satan, who will have tremendous power. So Satan apes God. He plans our destruction. And all these heretics, you have many antichrists today, I don't have to name them, who oppose the teaching of the church, teach a false doctrine on sexual morality, constantly tell the church that uh, we, we're free to think what we want about dogma and morals. They are doing the devil's work because the devil is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. They're killing souls. That's what they're doing. But they're preparing the way. And today... Is there really a situation whereby many of these signs are coming together that uh, society is becoming so corrupt that a sort of a mosaic is being built of many of these signs that our Lord told us to look for? Is that existing today? And I say, yes, it is. For example, it used to be a rather strange, odd thing to be an atheist. An atheist was always considered the village idiot. Somebody said he was an atheist. Today, being an atheist, you're considered an intellectual, somebody great. You have atheism in the East, all organized, militarized, ready to attack, is attacking the church under atheistic Marxist communism. And nobody's ashamed of in those countries that are real Marxist. Many good Christians are being persecuted, of course. They are not atheists. They have to practice their religion secretly and suffer for it. But that particular block of atheism controls over a billion souls, which means all, something like a third of the human race, and, it's, and it's, it's on the march. It wants to conquer other countries. It's attacking Afghanistan. It wants uh, Central America right now. And one of the attacks, out goes God, out go the churches. They're persecuting the Catholic Church in, the, in Nicaragua, even though many of our liberal Catholic bishops look the other way. See, maybe if they went down to live there a while and preach the faith, they'd see that there is a mini-antichrist here working against the church to secularize and make another Cuba. Cuba was a very great Catholic country. With our friend Castro there, the church is being persecuted. The people are being refused the liberty to practice their faith openly, freely. So, in the East, you've got this vast empire. In the West, we have what I call soft atheism. We talk about God, but we live like pagans. As, as our friend, uh, the prophet Isaiah, said about the Jews, when they fell that way, this people, God told Isaiah, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We are living in post-Christian paganism. God is an interesting topic for conversation. He's an interesting badge to wear 
in society to show that, well, you know, you're a civilized person, you're a Christian, but when it comes to action, well, oh, yes, I don't mind, you know, uh, being unfaithful to my wife or having an abortion or contraception or uh, who's the Pope to tell me what I should do and things like that. When it comes to the actual conduct, the moral stamina you're supposed to show against a world that is corrupt, many Christians succumb. Everybody's doing it? Must be all right. And they're not. They're not followers of Christ. They're followers of Satan. And we've got that soft atheism in the West. You know who predicted this was going to happen? A hundred years ago, Cardinal Newman, really I call him a prophet. I call him a, 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 you know, a founding, a father of the church for modern times. Lord knows he had a hard time uh, uh, getting to the faith, 15 years of hard study. But he went on to tell us in one of his writings exactly what was going to happen. And here's what he says 100 years ago. And I quote, Surely there is at this day a confederacy of evil marshalling its hosts from all parts of the world, organizing itself, taking its measures, and closing the Church of Christ as in a net and preparing the way for a general apostasy from it. This apostasy and all its tokens and instruments are of the evil one and savor of death. <clears throat> Pardon me. How does the evil one bring about this apostasy? He offers baits to tempt men. He promises liberty, equality, fraternity, <clears throat> trade and wealth, remission of taxes, reforms. He tempts men to rail against their rulers and superiors in imitation of his own revolution against God. He promises illumination, brilliance, elitism, knowledge, science, philosophy, enlargement of mind. He scoffs at times gone by. Aren't we living in an age which hates tradition? You call yourself a traditional Catholic, you're condemned right away. You're not up to date. You're antediluvian, you're pre-Vatican II, well, you should be in hell. I mean, hell's that old. It goes way back there, see, how far you are. So Newman saw this already, see. He scoffs at times gone by, at sacred traditions, at every institution which reveres them. Anybody that reveres sacred institutions in the church is in for a scolding and being ostracized. He bids man mount aloft to become his own god. How many, you read some of the occults, they tell you, there's a woman out in California, I have three or four tapes on her, she tells you that she's going back, uh, I think 35,000 years to a certain uh, Ramatha or something like that, who will make you your own God. And they're just sitting there absolutely fascinated. They pay $700 to $1,000 to sit in there and listen to her. She goes into a trance, and goes all the way back to Ramatha, and then she walks around and tickles their chins and talks to them, and they're all telling them what's going to happen in their life, you know. This is what my Ramasis or Ramatha tells me, and they're all eating it up. And she goes back to her chair and sits down and goes down into sort of a, 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 a prenatal condition and comes back to the world, and it's a new person, see. And they just love it. They're eating it up. She She fills the place to thousands of people, going for another cult, another false religion, and paying big bucks for it. I mean, I mean, she is rich. 
and everybody connected with it, they're, they're going to be millionaires over, and uh, maybe they are already. But anyway, there you have it. What does Satan do now? Uh, our friend Newman continues. What does he do? He scoffs at times gone by, at sacred traditions, at every institution which reveres them. He bids man mount aloft and become his own god. He laughs and jokes with men, gets intimate with them, takes their hands in his hand. I always keep thinking of false ecumenism. It's ecumenia, you know. You know, forget doctrine. We all love each other. We kiss each other. We we uh, we have tea together. We uh, we have parties together. What does Satan do? The Antichrist takes their hands, gets his fingers between theirs, grasps them, and then they are his. What a famous statement from John Henry Newman, who should be canonized and will be someday. So, is that happening today? Look around. I'll just call some of the things happening. Recall to your mind. First of all, you can't even mention God in schools. Schools are thoroughly secularized. And what do you find there? Not education, not even secular education. The kids go there, they're wild animals for fun. Just talk to any teacher that's teaching in at least public schools. Sex, more teenage girls are pregnant. Sex, drugs, a good time, parties. The schools are gone, absolutely gone. The families are breaking up all over the place, especially since there is this... um, uh, total corruption on, on sexual morality. Again, there's, we find out that uh, the courts keep making decisions in favor of secular humanism. You know, who, who coined the word that, that secular humanism was a religion? It was the Supreme Court, not the fundamentalists. In the case uh, against versus Torcaso, I guess, who, who was it? Uh, uh, Watkins. and uh, uh, Torcaso versus Watkins. It was, uh, who was it? Douglas, I think, who said Black, Justice Black, who said, there are many religions in this country that don't believe in God. And he went on to say, uh, mention some of them, you know. And then he said, secular humanism. So he made it the religion. So that is an atheistic God. That's later on in a footnote to another case. The justices agree that secular humanism is the American religion. So we're in the area where God and anything religious, public life is so rinsed of God and anything religious that you can't even mention them. I have a prayer, and society is in the hands of Satan. If God's not there, there's never a spiritual vacuum. When God goes, Satan enters. There's always somebody in that area taking care of mankind. Again, we see, for example, that uh, uh, religion is rather confined to a person's inner feelings, experiences. How often have you had, well, I have a bad feeling about that. I, uh, I feel right about this. And I know from my inner experience that there's ongoing revelation, and God's talking to me every day, and now the church is behind the time. She has static, rigid, inactive dogmas, as if those dogmas are not full of divine life. They're so active that if you thought about them, you'd never be able to exhaust the insights that come out of those dogmas. They're so full of truth, they're inexhaustible. But, of course, those that don't want to live by those dogmas will say they're static, they're rigid, Rigor mentis is set in the church, you know, and we say rigor cordis is set in the hearts of the atheists. There's no love. They have hard hearts, see, and they're going for Satan. They want excitement, experiences, new experiences. That's what St. Paul calls the titillation of the ears 
by false teachers of the listeners who want to be excited about religion and go from new thing to new thing. So they want experiences and psychological reactions. I think in the latest Jesuit magazines called Company, it's really funny. The Jesuit priest kneeling down and all around him, lying on the floor face upward, are women and men making a retreat. They're getting a new experience. It's very interesting. See, where, where do you think this is going on? Berkeley, of course. You want the up-to-date theology? Don't go to Rome. Go to Berkeley. You go to Rome, you're a has-been. You, you're just, you know, you're just treading, treading water. You're in the same place. You're spinning your wheels. Go to Berkeley, and you're in space. You're really in space theology, see. It's the best the And you'll never have a dull moment. A lot of parties and whatnot. And when you make a meditation, there'll be somebody with a beard and a strange habit on, and you'll be lying down and... They'll give you a certain amount of occultism. That's a form of mantra. They'll repeat things to you, and you'll feel yourself very, very peaceful. It's very enjoyable in the beginning. But as your mind becomes more and more vacuous, and that's the whole point, get everything out of your mind, in comes Satan. And before you know it, that fine feeling, if you keep it up, that fine feeling comes into tremendous fears, tremendous doubts, tremendous confusion. Tremendous depressions, and then you are ready to become a case of padded cells. Because Satan is driving you to the point of first becoming a displaced person, then becoming a despairing person, and finally, if he can get you that far, to become a social, first a psychological social suicide, finally a physical social, a physical suicide, if he can get you there. So there is a dark world of variable, evanescent, volatile feelings that religion is supposed to build up inside of you. True objective religion, historical religion, that Christ came and gave the church, that is discredited in the minds of many when it is not already destroyed. Today, go into the Catholic schools. They're just as bad. The nuns now jump around in leotards, some of them, see? Not only that, they go out, they're not in habit, they get the best coiffures, the best perfumes, their own cars, and they don't teach. They're interested in uh, the uh, inner city. And then the inner city people could care less. They don't want these well-perfumed, well-dressed, in the best uh, suits and cars coming around. There's nothing in common between them. So the universities and the colleges have abandoned loyalty to the Catholic Church. The poor pope presently is trying to get the bishops to talk to the university presidents Come on back into the church. You're going nowhere down the dead end of the secular magisterium outside the church. And they're saying, no, no, academic freedom. We have a right to say what we want, teach what we want. We're our own judges. We can keep the name Catholic, but the Pope can't tell us what Catholic means. We'll tell you what Catholic means. And you know what it means to them? Secularism. They've given up their faith. So what do they do? Good Catholic parents, thinking they're still Catholic, send their children there, pay money through their eye teeth, and their children come out pagans, hating the church, despising religion, not going to Mass, entering into bad marriages, breaking up quickly, having remarriages, and then trying to call themselves Catholic. It can't be done. It's being done, but of course, it is Satan's power. Prior to the sellout of secularism, these universities had so devalued the faith that Catholicism had finally become negotiable for money. They joined the government. And the government said, First Amendment, can't have church and state. If you take money from us, 
You cannot teach in favor of Catholic theology or in favor of any theology. You can teach smorgasbord theology. Hinduism, Mormonism is just on the same level as Catholicism. As long as you teach, you know, smorgasbord courses and not adhere to anyone is true and the rest of them being false, you can have the money that we're giving you otherwise. You can't because then you become a sect. Thus today, in too many Catholic universities, into, um, financialism, materialism, and intellectualism is preferred to Catholicism. Scientism is preferred to faith. Relativism is preferred to truth. Immanentism is preferred to transcend, transcendency. Not up to God. Where all, everything's here. Nothing's hereafter. Subjectivism is preferred to reality, objectivity. Situationism in moral matters is preferred to moral integrity. And anarchism is preferred to authority. Authority is despised today. Don't, don't fence me in. You're okay, I'm okay, just as long as we do our own thing. See, that's part of the breakdown of society preparing for the coming of the Antichrist. Now... There are five characteristics of this sort of thing that's, that's eating out the church. One is anthropomorphism. Man is the center of religion. Now, God is out. Man, anthropos in Greek means man. Anthropomorphism says this. Man is the center of religion. He's his own God. And God is to be found only in the face, fortunes, future functions of man. Look at man and you find God. Then immanentism, the second characteristic. We don't look for a kingdom hereafter. Now, everything's here. We're made here, we're here to build a world, a utopia, and the main sins are social poverty uh, and, and alphabetism, not able to speak, illiteracy, uh, depressed areas, uh, low standards of living, uh, disease, lack of education. These, these are social sins. Personal sins? Forget it. Those are old, those are old old, what do you call them, old Romides that the church talked about. But we've outgrown them. We are, remember now, we are men. We are an age which has come of age. We don't need God anymore. So then, immanentism instead of transcendentism, going up to God. The vertical thrust to God is gone. We're now all horizontal. The way the Jesuits are on the floor there. Everybody's horizontal. See? <laughs> They're learning religion with their backs and sometimes their faces to the floor. And it's seeping into experience. See? Now, the third characteristic is the new evangelism. The gospel was really meant for the poor. It wasn't meant for everybody. Our Lord really was a social reformer, and the church has misinterpreted the gospel for 2,000 years. She thinks it's for everybody, and to save souls and bring them to religion, uh, to a supernatural life. No, the gospel was meant for the poor, and the only people who can interpret the gospel correctly today are the socialists and the communists, the Marxists. Anybody else is tied in with the exploiting superstructure of, ca of capitalism. And the reason they teach a, uh, a gospel that teaches humility and mercy and forgiveness is to keep the masses down so they won't revolt. And you can control them and still have your wealth at the top. See, the superstructure is the one that taught the meaning of the gospel to be forgiving, humble, like the person in today's uh, a gospel for today's mass. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't even look up and he goes home justified. No. All that is to keep the people down so that they won't build that utopia they're called to build. 
Then the new ecclesiology, the church is a victim. Church is not something that's divinely made. No. She comes out of the people. And the people give the church authority, not Christ. She doesn't come from God down to us through Christ, the Son of God incarnate. The church is the people of God. Notice how they love that phrase. Because people is a good communist word. They're always, whatever they do, they do to save the people, the masses, the proletarians. So the church is the people. They have co-responsibility for everything. And the Pope, he shouldn't be teaching. He should be listening to the people. They're the ones that will tell him what he should do. See? And so when he came to the country and he, he started teaching, who was it? Mary came. The nun got up and said, you're not listening to us, Holy Father. You're supposed to be listening. We're the ones that are supposed to be telling you what to do. So we have now a new uh, ecclesiology, see? And anybody can be a priest, male, female. Just pick somebody out of, the, out of the congregation and say, go on up and act as priest, see? There's no such thing as sacrament, see? All authority comes from the faithful, and everybody has co-responsibility. Everybody is in the magisterium, all chiefs and no braves. And finally, the fifth characteristic, the new passion for Jesus Christ. The love for Christ is not for the God-man. It's for the Christ who is a great man, a man for others, a friend, a defender of the poor, a liberator. That's a key word, liberation theology. Christ is a liberator. And the priests that follow him are going out to liberate man from the exploitation of capitalism or of any superstructure, the church itself being one of those superstructures, the Catholic Church. So Christ is really the revolutionary and the grand subverter. He will be the one who will help to overthrow all corrupt institutions, the Catholic Church itself, because it's corrupt in the eyes of these people, because it has a hierarchy. Anything that has a hierarchy is out. After all, we've got to have a class of society. Everybody's got to be flattened, like the Jesuit fellows on the floor. You can't have a hierarchy, one above another. See, everybody's got to be flattened. That is the falsification of the equality that came out of the French Revolution. All citizens are alike, but of course, by the time they were finished, they were sending Madame Guillotine to chop off citizens' heads to the tune of hundreds and thousands. Now, that's what we're dealing with today. Now, what is the Antichrist going to do? All of those movements that are evil, he will unite them and orchestrate them with his tremendous power to fight against the church. He will get control of the military, the economic, he'll probably be an economic savior. He'll probably find a way of having a, a tremendous gross national product for anybody that lives in the world, anybody that follows him. He will then have a sign that he puts on his followers, which say they follow him. That sign, which will be either on their forehead or on their hand, the, the uh, gospel, not the, the uh, apocalypse says the number will be 666, which is the number of the man. Notice, not the number of God, because when God takes us as his children, he puts his sign on us in the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, and of course in holy orders too. But that says you're a divine creature now. You're more than me, a human. You're divinized men. Followers of Christ, children of God, heirs of heaven. He's going to have his sign, and that sign, if you don't have it, you're an enemy of his, you cannot get a job, you can't buy in the markets, you're going to be persecuted, you have to go underground. He will have so much power that even Daniel tells us in the Old Testament, he will stop the celebration of the eternal sacrifice to God. Now, will he stop it completely in public? 
the church will have to go underground again and masses will have to be said secretly because he will wipe out visible churches where you could go and practice your religion. You see that beginning to be done already behind the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain where they spot everyone that goes to a church. Their names are down. They can't get jobs. Their families are watched. They're visited at night, thrown into jail. Well, the Antichrist will have a far greater spy system than anything that the Marxists have ever worked out because he will be super powerful in the sense of secular power. Again, he will be successful. He's going to rebuild the temple. Have his, the Antichrist, by the way, will have also a forerunner, a, a sort of a false prophet who will go around as his agent, his publicity agent. He will strike a statue to him in the new temple. The statue, St. John tells us, will be able to talk and walk. And everybody will be determined to adore that statue, which is struck in the image and likeness of the Antichrist himself, or else be punished. It reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar, who had a huge statue in gold and had clay feet, and the three young lads would not adore it. Every time the bell rang, wherever you were, the Jews were in captivity, you had to stop and bow down to that statue. They said, no. So he heard about it, and they put him in the boiling coals and the boil and fire, but the angel saved him. He was a forerunner of the Antichrist. He was a mini-Antichrist. The real Antichrist will rebuild the temple, have a statue struck to himself, and demand adoration. So that is St. Saint, Saint, uh, Paul tells us he will put himself above others as God, man of sin. So there. Then again, we're told he will have th- tremendous success for three and a half years. God is going to cut his reign of terror short. Incidentally, he comes to power not through violence, but through stealth as a charming man. He comes to power by convincing the other powers what a wonderful person he is. So that uh, even our friend uh, Daniel, way back in in his uh, prophecy, tells us this about him, which is showing you that the Antichrist prophecy has been with the Revelation ever since the beginning of the Revelation itself. He says here, he will be left, and one of them, the Antichrist, will persuade the other two to let him have full power. He said, in his estate, the Antichrist, shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in to the top of the kingdom peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt by his flatteries. But the people that do not that do know their true God, they shall be strong and do exploits. And the king shall do according to his will. This is the Antichrist king. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. Notice the same phrases that St. Paul used. And shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper until the indignation of the true God is accomplished. So there you have way back there. Now, He tells us that he'll reign for a time, two times, and a half a time. A time was interpreted by all the fathers as a year, two years, and a half a year. Later on, John the Evangelist tells us he will reign for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Again, he tells us 1,260 days, about three and a half years. So his reign will be cut short so that, as Christ says, many of the elect, if he had continued to reign a long time, might be tempted to give in 
and join the Antichrist. So to save many of the elect, God will shorten the time of the Antichrist's reign. Now, will the Antichrist have a clear sailing? No. St. John tells us that after he's got power and built his temple, the two prophets who have never died, St. Thomas tells us in his, some, in his Summa, that these two prophets, they're not in the heaven of the beatific vision, namely Elias and Henoch. God took them away. They didn't die. But they're in a special place, St. Thomas says, preparing to come back and fulfill God's plan for the economy of salvation. When the Antichrist gets power, Henoch and Elias come back and they unmask him. Against the Antichrist lying wonders, they perform real miracles. And in that struggle between their witnessing to the true church, the Catholic church, and the Antichrist witnessing to the kingdom of Satan, many of the Jews, where that will be the time St. Paul is talking about, will come into the church because they will see the Antichrist unmasked by the two prophets. Others will not come in. They'll take their lot, as, as is put in by St. Paul, or rather St. John. He says, many will follow the Antichrist because they do not love the truth. If you don't love the truth, you love lying, so you follow the Antichrist. So that will be a big crisis for the Jews. Then they'll realize who, what Christ was, what he did for them, and many will enter the Catholic Church. Others will go with the Antichrist. Now, just as the prophets have unmasked the Antichrist as a fraud and as the enemy of God, God allows the Antichrist to kill, assassinate Henoch and Elias. It is appointed for every man to wants to die. They had never died. They're martyrs for the cause. And St. John tells us, all of the Antichrist followers just jump with joy. We've gotten rid of those pests now. We've got the whole world to ourselves and they're rejoicing and having a great time and they leave their bodies. One of the best forms of, worst forms of uh, contempt uh, the Jews could show for anybody they hated was that after they killed them, they wouldn't bury them. They'd leave them outside where animals and dogs and birds could pick on his body. So the, anti the two prophets will be in lying, as St. John says, in the city where Christ was crucified. Unburied and while the Antichrist and his uh, cohorts and powers are rejoicing, suddenly a voice from heaven will be heard. Come up hither. And the two prophets will rise and go right up to heaven to the consternation of the forces of the Antichrist. And it is then that he throws all his weight to destroy the church. There is a final tremendous confl conflagration between the Antichrist and the forces of God. But when it looks as if the Antichrist is finally going to destroy the church, then St. John tells us Christ comes and destroys both him, casts him and Satan headlong into the flames of lake of fire, and the end of time is finished. The second coming of Christ comes in power and glory, and the Antichrist and his Satan's kingdom is destroyed. Now these are prophecies that the apostles preached about. The fathers preached about. They're written up in doc documents of the church. The church has never denied them. Why don't you ever hear about them? Now, near the end of the, near the, end of, the, of, the, of the liturgical year, the church does begin to have readings out of the Apocalypse. If you notice, at least in the old time tradition, you had readings from the Apocalypse to warn you that you're only a pilgrim here and there's going to be a big struggle coming sooner or later when 
the powers of darkness will throw everything at the church. And it will take the power of the Son of God coming back in glory to defeat them. Powers of Satan. And so the church brings us to that at the end of the liturgical year to tell us that the end of the world is going to be that way. So today, if you notice, all sorts of movies are made. People have a sense that something's wrong. Our Lady appears. La Salette, she's weeping. If you ever read the, uh, if you ever read the uh, vision of La Salette, it's absolutely soul-stirring what she says there. She says that the Antichrist will be born of a fallen-away nun and a bishop. Doesn't give any names. Now, that, those uh, prophecies of, of La Salette have three popes, Stamps of approval on them. Leo the Thirteenth, Pius the Ninth, and Pius the Tenth. All three of them holy men. Pius the Ninth will be canonized. Pius the Tenth is canonized. I don't know if Leo will ever be. Maybe they don't know enough about him. But anyway, he was a great pope and reigned for years. Now, in those prophecies, Our Lady is telling what's going to happen, and she says one of the reasons, and that's why these two children were persecuted so fiercely by the clergy. One of the reasons the Antichrist will get power is the clergy will betray their devotion and vows to God. Many of the clergy will be leading thousands of souls to hell by their bad lives. And that was the reason why the two little children who were told by Our Lady to get the message out were persecuted by priests and bishops. And one bishop put the little uh, Melanie, who didn't understand a word of English, he forced her into an English convent. So she couldn't go out and tell the tell uh, the, the uh, message that Our Lady gave her. And when Pius IX heard about it, he dispensed her from her vows and got her, out, got her out of that convent. And that bishop that did it, by the way, died a violent death. And the little boy, Maximilian, when he was trying to tell his bishop about it, the bishop was bawling him out, and the little fellow was frightened to death, and finally he said to the bishop, got bold, and said to the bishop, all right, if you don't believe me, I'll tell you something else. And the bishop looked at him and said, what's that? says, you know, you're a little fraud. He says, this time next year, you'll be shot to death in the streets of Paris. A year later, there was the Marxist insurrection in Paris. The bishop was killed in the streets. The little boy was trying to tell him, what I'm telling you is not my knowledge. It's been given to me. I've been told to tell you about it. Why get mad at me? Because I have to tell you a bad message, a message that's not too palatable to clergy. So he was. He was shot in the streets by that uprising. If you remember, somewhere around 18... 35 or 53, right there, with the first attempt of the communists to take power failed in, in France, see. So these messages are there. There's, there's, uh, there's the message at, uh, at, uh, at Fatima. The Pope gone there and blessed it. These are warnings. You know, the way God used prophets in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he uses his mother of God. If they won't listen to my human prophets, I'll send them the mother of my divine son. They might listen to her. And, of course, he uses the popes as his prophets. The popes preach the doctrine, the two doctrines. But if they won't listen to the popes, who are infallible, and to Mary, who is the seat of wisdom, the mother of God, who has nothing but love for the human family, who will they listen to? See? Is there anybody to listen to? Well, that's why she threatens a great catastrophe, a punishment, a chastisement. Because when men will not listen to truth, they sometimes have to learn by having their heads bloodied. We're, but me, we're human beings with bodies and souls. If the soul won't listen, maybe the body's nerves will listen. Like sickness, death, war, conflagration. Then we get on our knees and say, God, forgive us. We're sorry. We did the wrong thing. We want to come back and God will forgive, of course. 
but the punishment still is allowed because you have to give temple punishment for sin. So here is what we have today. Now there are four revolutions that have brought this about. This didn't happen overnight. First revolution, the religious revolution, Luther, breaking away from the church, pulling all the northern countries with him. Again, King Henry VIII pulling England away because he wanted his own selfish marriage. These were the religious religious revolutions which started to break up in the church, but outside of the church, at least those people left the church as real rebels. That was one. And you began to have the dividing of Christianity, which, of course, is a field day for Satan because Satan divide and conquer is his policy. Then the second revolution was the French Revolution, which laicized the Catholic country, attacked the Pope, and taught the religion of reason. Everything is done by reason. It was a, a, an up-to-date form of Gnosticism. And man was his own God, and man was made for liberty, fraternity, and equality. But that liberty meant no restrictions. The church had no right to order us to do a thing. She was banished. Religious orders were thrown out of France. Uh, then, of course, that, that idea was spread by the victories of Napoleon, who again was fighting the church. Put, he put, uh, who was it, Paul, uh, uh, I forget, the, the seventh, not Paul, it's uh, trying to think of his, Pius seventh in jail because he wouldn't bless his marriage, his divorce from Jefferson, and his marriage to Teresa of Austria. Pope said no. So he put him in jail for a while. And then, of course, the famous phrase came, qui mange le pape meurt, who eats the Pope dies. From then on, Napoleon lost battle after battle until he was destroyed. God punished him. Second revolution brought in the idea that the church is not to be heard in public matters. And we have that today. Out of public life, religion's a private affair. We don't want to hear anything from God. God doesn't rule politics. He doesn't rule economics. He doesn't rule the world of entertainment. He's out except for the sacristy. Third revolution came along with modernism. Inside the church now, all of these dogmas were rinsed and drained of their supernatural quality and explained by pure reason. The religion of reason now left Protestantism and came into the church and you have Pius X. Incidentally, against each of these revolutions, you had the church fighting. The Council of Trent fought against the religious, religious revolution. Pius IX fought against the French Revolution. In fact, he had to leave Rome. They were trying to kill him for a short while. He had to flee. Pius X hit a hammer's blow against uh, modernism how to excommunicate some people and take some bishops out of positions where they were having modernism taught in the seminaries. But he said at the time, I don't pride myself on having killed this enemy. It's going to come out again someday in a worse form. We have it today, neo-modernism. And now it's mixed up with a fourth revolution, which is stirring up the other three and preparing for the coming of the Antichrist. That's Marxism. Now you got priests who are Marxists in the government of Nicaragua, won't go back to their priesthood. You have priests who go out with a gun to fight on the side of the Marxists. You have priests, the marrying a whole order, out for Marxism. All of them, just going, millions of dollars given by faithful Catholics, used for Marxism. You have priests telling the Pope, when he's trying to say Mass in Nicaragua, shouting and screaming at him at a sacred place, when he's trying to tell him the theology of liberation is nothing else but silent, fraudulent Marxism with a religious veer put on it. It's not Catholicism. So you have bishops in this country backing the Sandinistas. You have bishops all over the world, all down South America. The theology of, of liberation just has permeated 
whole diocese. Cardinals have taken it up by it. In Rome, they've got their roots. Theologians teach it in Germany. That's where it started as a theology idea in Germany and picked up quickly. You have bishops in South uh, United States who go to visit uh, Castro time and again, personal friends with him, even as he's persecuting the church, and they're pushing priests in their diocese who are out and out theologians of liberation against the teaching of the church. So the fourth revolution, Marxism, which was kept out of the church by Pius XI and his famous encyclical atheistic communism, in which he said, anyone who cooperates in any way with communism will be working for the destruction of the Christian culture and faith. Today, it's a normal thing to cooperate with them. Bishops, Casaroli, without us politique, kissing communists and whatnot. So that's gotten into the church. These four revolutions are all there. And then add the moral revolution, which is the fruit of the dogmatic revolution, because tell me what your convictions are, and I'll tell you what your morals are. If you don't believe the truth, you're not going to live a morally good life. If you believe lies, heresies, you're going to lead an unfaithful life to man and to God. And so now, as a result of all of these dogmatic revolutions, you've got the total, really moral revolution today, whereby the West is seeped into immoral laws. We legalize immorality now. Divorce laws. Abortion laws. Uh, contraceptive laws. Lesbian marriages. We legalize evil now. And yet, back in the day of St. John the, the, uh, John the Baptist, he could say to, to uh, Herod, it is unlawful for you to take your brother's wife. One man taking his brother's wife, and he lost his head for that. Today, we don't even have enough courageous leaders in the church to tell the government it's unlawful for you to kill innocent children. It's unlawful for you to, uh, to be spreading uh, condoms to people so that they can be invited to commit serious fornication sins and whatnot. Know that the voice of the prophet seems to be quieted, except for the Pope. The Pope says it. Mother Teresa says it. But it's not being said widely enough to eat into the leaven of society, which is today rotten and needs the leaven of Christ's gospel and the leaven of Christ's moral holiness. We need that. There aren't enough of us as saints to really break out the cancer of immorality and heresy. We need that. You and I, we have to live our faith more courageously, more intensely, more openly, not hide it. Today there's a terrible inferiority for the faith, over the faith. Why? Because of the boldness of the enemies of God. They preach whatever they want. They have control of the media, TV, radio, newspapers, and you try to get a letter in just adding a demurrer to some false document, you might get it in, you might not. It'll be a, a real surprise if you get it in. So this is what we have today with the coming of the Antichrist. Is he here? Is he in the wings? Three popes thought he might be alive. They were only speculating. They weren't teaching from the cathedral or morals. Pius the uh, 10th said at the time when he was beatifying St. Uh, Joan of Arc. He says, things are so bad in the church that perhaps the man of sin is already born and growing up. Pius the, uh, Paul VI said, the smoke of Satan is already inside the church. And John Paul II said, at a famous, and I'll finish with that, at a famous talk he gave before he was ever Pope. He was here for the centenary, 1976, the 200th year anniversary of the founding of the country. And here's what he said in his farewell address as he was going back 
to Krakow as a cardinal, never knowing at the time that two years later he would be pope. Part of his speech, which was at the time, nobody noticed what he said. He wasn't pope yet. But when he was made pope, the Wall Street Journal printed what he said that day on, you'll find it in the Wall Street Journal for November 9, 1978. He's already pope then. But two years earlier he had said, and I quote, we are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has ever gone through. I do not think the wide circle of the American society or the wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church, the gospel versus the anti-gospel, Christ versus antichrist. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. It is a trial which the whole church must take up. How do we take it up? By becoming saints, by in word, deed, and action, living a life of fidelity to our divine Lord and His Blessed Mother, and witnessing to the truth of our Catholic faith and never being ashamed of it. Thank you very much. So, and the National Council of Churches, you know, it's going to be easy for the Antichrist to take over. Why? Because you have lots of groups that can join him quickly. Let's take the United Nations. Let's take the uh, European uh, 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 Economic Group. They can all go together and one, you know, groups tend to imitate one another, people in groups. So the National Catholic Churches has definitely been infiltrated by Marxism and they are very much in the realm of secularized religion. You've got many of the Protestant churches even that now agree on abortion. So you can have abortion, divorce, easy divorce, uh, and even lesbian marriages. And so as the, the devil eats them out, they all become allies of the coming Antichrist because he will orchestrate every evil organization into being with him in his effort to destroy the church. So they are definitely infiltrated by the... And of course, their whole point is to uh, try to build a utopia here on earth. They go for the poor. They think that an, an economic salvation is all man needs, as if he were just merely uh, an animal instead of a, uh, a spiritual being made in the image and likeness of God. They don't care about the soul. They think if they take care of the body and man's physical and economic environment, that's all that's needed. And that, of course, is a heresy. Good. Well, the Renew Program really is another form of, uh, of naturalistic pulling oneself up by his own bootstraps. See, one of the big things that, that has gotten into the church is that you can improve yourself by yourself, by these different things. Uh, and they forget that all improvement comes from God. Without God, we can do nothing. Our Lord said, without me, you can do nothing. We can't become saints except we go to God and use the spiritual means. And he makes us saints. New renew is a perfectly natural thing, which therefore it's in the camp of the enemy. It is a natural lie. You don't make yourself better by doing things on your own. You make yourself better by cooperating with the grace of God. But the one who makes you better is God, not you yourself. And so renew is another form of naturalistic humanism. That's all. Really, it's exciting. You do things, you know. 
I'm okay, you're okay, we're all buddies, you know, and uh, uh, let's hold hands and dance around the, the Maypole, you know, and I have a Jesuit teaching at uh, Fordham. He's teaching, uh, uh, what's it called, Silver Mind Control. Have you ever seen that fellow on TV, the founder of Silver Mind Control, followed by the name of Jose Silva? It is unbelievable. You couldn't believe it. You'd go out of your mind. It's so funny. What's wrong with us today, according to Jose, is we're not thinking with the right lobe of the brain. We're only thinking with the left. And until we think with the right lobe, none of our problems are going to be solved. So what's his job? Get us to think with that right lobe. He sits there and he really says this. And he misinterprets Scripture. To tell you that, only by silver mind control, using the right lobe of your brain, will you heal physical diseases, spiritual problems, marital problems. Everything's on the upbeat, provided the Savior of the world is the right lobe of your brain. You didn't know that, did you? You live and learn a lot of things. <laughs> this is, uh, so help me, I've listened to three or four of his shows, and it is so ridiculous that even the Protestant ministers that are against him are far more reasonable. They, they, they say to him, Jose, how does the right lobe of your brain, how does that give you absolution for your sins? See, Jose doesn't know what they say. Well, wait a minute now. Sin is only, only a mental condition. It really isn't a reality out there. So if I think with the right lobe of my brain, that mental condition will go away. So objectivity of sin. Then you say, oh, Jose, what about Christ? Don't you believe in Christ? Yeah, he says, Christ is a great, a very great uh, a prophet, and he was the only one that really fought with the right law of the faith. <laughs> what are you going to do, see? It gets, it gets more and more ridiculous, see? And he's got thousands of followers, millions, and he sells books, and it's unbelievable. The guy must be a multimillionaire. People will fall for anything in religion if you explain it in some fascinating way with some mysterious aspect to it. Question? Yeah. Still a mind control. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Of course. No, parents don't know it. And, uh, you know, every, very often when you see a teacher, again, this is a cult that probably Dr. Marrow will bring in, very often you'll see a teacher with the young kids and say, now, children, uh, yeah, this is Dungeons and Dragons. Starts out this way. Now, children, we're going to really relax. Everybody lie on the floor, relax, and the kids love it naturally. Schools that got going on, they lie on the floor. Close your eyes now. Close them. All their eyes closed, and they're just lying there. They look like little angels, you know. And then the teacher starts drumming in a mantha into their brain, and they don't realize it. The kids don't realize. They think it's a lot of fun game. See, they're beginning to give their minds away to Satan as the teacher begins to use an occult method on them suggesting what they should be thinking while they keep completely relaxed. Right in the classroom. And government pays money for that to those teachers. Is that what it is? Stress management. They get rid of they get rid of the stress and the devil becomes a manager. That's what happens of their souls, yeah. Yes, I know now will I clarify the meet prayer meeting the Pope held with all forms of religion. Hindus and uh, Confucianists and uh, everybody, all religions, at, at all religions, he invited them. All, not all came. I remember the Jews wouldn't come because they're mad at him because he doesn't, they don't recognize the state of Israel, Zionism. Well, anyway, the Pope was praying for peace. Now, 
Personally, I think that was, uh, see, popes are not uh, infallible on policy. I think that was a bad policy. Goodwill. He wants to bring people to get peace on their mind. Their intention's excellent. But as Cardinal Gagnon asked the Pope, he said, uh, what God will these other people be praying to? And the Pope said, well, we're doing it just to try and get peace. But that's not the way you're going to get peace. But the only way you're going to get peace, and that's what I think is rather somewhat startling to me. When Paul VI approached the United Nations, I remember being very disappointed. And I think he said this only rhetorically. He wasn't speaking dogmatically. He just, you know, got very fervent and, and you know, sort of forgot himself and just said something nice for the U.N., when he said to them as he's talking to them, you are the last and only hope for peace in this world. I said, my God, has he forgotten about the Catholic Church? Has he forgotten about Christ? Now, I'm sure he, on reflection, he would not, he would immediately, uh, uh, he would immediately change that and say, wait a minute now. The only peace we can get is, as Christ said, I, my peace I give you, uh, my peace I leave you. Not as the world gives peace. And God, God knows the United Nations is not giving anybody peace. They're giving pieces. See, everything's falling apart. See, so the Pope got excited, and in a rhetorical manner, he said something that immediately I said, well, he doesn't realize what he's saying. It's not true. The only real source of peace is Christ and his church, if people will listen to those Christ and his church and follow their teaching and their morals. Then you'll have peace, but not from the United Nations. Well, the same way, this ecumenical gathering in Assisi was an attempt to try to get the spirit of St. Francis into even foreign religions and maybe get a show of many religions calling for peace and maybe, uh, you know, cooling down the race for nuclear weapons. I think it was a failure because, see, the danger is, and this is a danger that I've seen already take place, people then say, well, what's the use of becoming a Catholic? You can go to, you can be saved by any religion you are. You don't know That leads to indifferentism, and the church has always condemned indifferentism. See? Now, it was not a religious service. Get that straight. The church has a law... Anyone who engages in religious service with heretical churches, that's a serious sin. This was not a religious service as such. It was a public prayer together, as he did, I think, a few years before that Paul did in Geneva. Remember? That was just a public prayer to God, but it was not anything that contained a religious service. I think the desire to get ecumenism going is what led to something like this. And I don't think ecumenism is on the right track. It's becoming... Uh, this the thing that Newman brought out. The devil says, "We're all nice guys. Shake hands, and well, there's no difference. No, let's not talk about the differences we have on faith and morals. You, you, I like you. You like me, and I pray for you, and we're good social buddies. And uh, you know, let's not talk about uh, the things that dis- we disagree on, like faith and morals. Well, if you don't talk about them, I don't care. You can always love. You must love even your enemies, but you can't live with people that don't believe the same things you do." A community is founded on truth, everybody agreeing to the truth. If you don't agree, and that's what's happening to religious orders today, most of the houses are divided houses. Some will say Christ is divine in the house, others say no. They're not communities anymore. They're split down the middle. A house divided against itself can't stand. They're not getting vocations. They're losing people left and right. They're dying. Why? They're a divided house. You only have unity on truth as it comes from God. That gives you a community. Anything else could be a country club, a uh, social organization that likes to have evening drinks together, see, a uh, cultural party group, but nothing serious, see. You're really not bound together as a community. And that's what uh, 
ecumenism is doing today, it is so superficial that it's not doing the Catholic faith any good, and it's not doing the non-Catholic faith any good. Uh, yeah. Follow up? Well, anyway, whatever you say, he culturally and community-wise, Huss was killed as a person. He didn't lead a new religion. That's what I'm talking about. Any 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 private heretic who dies, after all, you had heretics in the church all the way back to Tertullian and other people. They didn't take whole groups with them and say, we're founding another church. Luther did. Luther split the church in Germany and established his own Bible and his own, even his own college. So we're talking about the religious revolution which split the church. King Henry took a whole nation out of the church. In other words, all the bishops gave in to King Henry except John Fisher. Except one bishop, John Fisher. See? One more question. So that really, heretics are always leaving individually, but when you have a major break, it's a whole, whole group of people that follow out. 